Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. Today, I am talking to one of my absolute favorite fintech legends, Lida Glyptus. I always love to hear what Lida's perspective is on the world and how things are changing. In this interview, we're going to be discussing the aftermath from Brexit, how APIs are creating a Harry Potter moment, and the golden rule she'll never break. Much more to come. Let's get into it. Making this show in terms of fintech insider, we get to meet some of the nicest people in fintech and banking, and we also get to meet some of the smartest. And actually, I think today we're meeting probably one of the nicest and the smartest people in it. I'm buttering up her a lot here, and as the interview will go along, we'll probably change the tone of it slightly in terms of where we're going. But today we're sitting here with Lida Glyptus. So, Lida, thank you very much for for joining us here. Thank you for having me. Am I blushing yet, or did I did I get the makeup right? Absolutely. Um, there's a you know, you're continually sort of popping up in the in the press at the moment in terms of various different things. You know, I've seen about three or four uh, big keynotes you've been doing recently about APIs and open banking, and we'll come to that subject in a little while. And I think you've just popped up in the was it the top twenty people to know in in fintech as well, which is quite a. It made my mother thing. very happy. It did it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I love I love that she was excited by it. It was great. Um, she did not want to know that there are several of those lists, and I'm not on all of them. She was not interested in any of those. That was obviously the best list. Fo- focus on the one you're on. Exactly. That's, that's always my rule. So, but maybe before we get into a little bit about sort of what you're doing now and kind of uh, the the sort of fintech and banking scene, if we can maybe learn a little bit more about you. So, obviously, Lida Glyptis, you're you're not sort of a, a London local, as it were, in terms of uh, no. where, where you come from, but you grew and. Uh, was it Athens? Yes, grew? I grew up in Athens. I'm not from these parts. I um, I was born and raised in Greece uh, at a time when it was very different to what it is now. It was uh, a transitional period of great madness and great opportunity where absolutely everything felt possible. And it's it's interesting to look back at the people of my generation and uh, and see where they've ended up. And despite the variety of backgrounds. Um, it turned out to be quite an aspirational generation, not necessarily a very um, politically minded one. There are not many back there cleaning up the mess, but uh, but an aspirational one. Mm. And what sort of made the the change then to to London? What what, uh, what made you move from Athens to to London? Was it purely from an educational perspective? Or? Um, my mum made me. Okay. Um, Pack your bags and was like, pretty much. Uh, I uh, it was education. Um, but it was also a case of my mum made me. I um I was a a good student. I was a geek all my life. Uh, now I'm proud of it. At the time, I wasn't hugely proud of it. Well, um, well, you've you've just generally, I think, probably got one of the most impressive educations I've ever come. Like now, I'm in like intimidated in terms of. Joke. So you went to King's College, Cambridge, to do a BA in social and political science, which is like. As, as far as kind of appetizers for kind of education goes, that's like the deepest of, of doing it, isn't it? You went on then to do an MSc in comparative politics at the London School of Economics and then topped that off with a PhD in politics at the that's same right. place. Like right. you, you were like glutton for punishment when it came to education, right? It was all about being able to answer with doctor actually when people ask miss or missus. But, um, Shall I record the intro again? And say, <laughs> no. no, it's fine. I've grown out of it now. Um, I was a glutton for punishment, and I enjoyed every second of it. Um, but fundamentally, that that is what got me here. So I was um, I, I was bookish and, and into my studies and very curious. Um, the Greek education system, for all its strengths, is uh, based around rote learning, and it just wouldn't suit me. Um, and I decided I would leave the country, which is quite a dramatic decision. I didn't come from stashes of, of cash. So it was a difficult decision, both practically and emotionally. Uh, and while I was grappling with all of it, my mother, in her usual dramatic way, she says, you're going to go. Uh, but if you're going to go, you're going to go to Cambridge. Because I read somewhere that it's the best university in Europe. So if you're going to go, do it right. Reader's Digest have got a lot to ask for, haven't they? They really do. So I think I'm the only person who went to Cambridge because their mum told them to. But, you know, you can you can have worse problems in life. Indeed. And, and how was the experience? Because like I say, there's some pretty pretty heavy-going subjects in terms of the all of them, really. So uh, how, how was it? How was the experience of going to Cambridge? Hindsight colours it quite heavily. Um, I think everyone who, who goes to one of those universities spends the first few months thinking they are some sort of admin error and waiting for someone to call and say, oops. Um, and, and we did, towards graduation, talk about the fact that we all felt 
a little bit like a fraud when we arrived. And then you find your feet and realize that actually you're not at all a fraud and, and you are pretty good at certain things and not so good at others. Um, it was perfectly suited to me and I was suited to it in that it's very um, heavily academic. You, you don't go there to tick in a box. You go if you're seriously geeky. And I am and I loved my topic and spending endless hours immersed in it was part of what I was prepared to do. So in that sense, it was a good fit. Um, it's not an obvious place to decode um, when you come from a different part of the world. And culturally, it took, it took quite a lot of decoding to, to understand it and find your own place in it. So I'd say overall, it was great and it was very useful and it was an amazing intellectual experience. But in terms of an alma mater, in terms of a, a spiritual home, LSE was more in line with who I am as a person. Although that person was very much molded by my first few years at Cambridge. So maybe had I gone there as an undergrad, it wouldn't have been as comfortable. Yeah. Uh, but, you know. I think that's interesting you say about the, you know, the idea of this, uh, people talk, often talk about imposter syndrome, you know, and actually the feeling of being found out, like you say, you know, I'm pretty much experienced that my entire career, quite frankly, so nobody's got onto me just yet, so uh, I think we're good. Nobody will watch this, it'll be fine, nobody will ever Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think there is a certain degree of, of humility that um, that is present. When, when you doubt um, these things, that, that, that is definitely a manifestation of humility. And I think what we are seeing, uh, not just our generation, although I'm older than him, older than you, um, our generation, but also our discipline, is that we are unlearning the fact that you should hide that humility. Because we have transitioned into a space with that humility of, is that right? Am I getting that right? Is actually a massive strength. At the time, late 90s, you've made it to Cambridge. You needed to have a little bit of a sort of strut about it. And, and, and I do remember feigning it and faking it until it felt natural. But, but I have um, tried to retain that. Are we sure? Humility. Yeah, I think it's necessary for sure. So you went on to then do, and actually, I guess, sort of stepping into your, your career in terms of uh, outside of, uh, um, you know, first, first instance of being called doctor, I guess, in terms of your, uh, you went into a company called Global Strategies Group uh, and were there for a couple of years. And this yes. is, it's the work that you were doing there looks quite a bit different to, I guess, the types of things that you're doing now. But you started in comms and project management. Is that yes, right? I did. Um, so I was finishing my PhD and I had a... Um, I had three deaths in my family in the space of three months. So finishing a PhD is a, is a emotionally taxing and intellectually taxing process. We all go a little mad while we're finishing our PhDs. And I had um, a, quite a lot of, of sort of trauma in the middle of it. So I, I, um, I overran by a few months, which meant that my funding ran out. Okay. Which for some people isn't a big problem. <laughs> for me it was. So I was writing up dealing with all of this and applying for jobs um, at the same time. And I was firing off CVs um, to places that I thought would potentially use me. Because one of the things that, um, PhDs are exceptionally useful things. Once you've figured out what they're useful for, they teach you how to stay with a problem um, until it's solved, however long that takes. And and it has been invaluable in the rest of my life, but they don't really teach you what your marketability is while you're there. They assume that you'll become an academic, and if you don't, you you leave the process um, not entirely seeing all the various things you could do. So I was limiting myself in terms of where I was applying, and I applied to Global Strategies uh, Group for a researcher role, and um, the uh, chief strategy officer picked me up and put me through about five or six interviews, and I was thinking... Surely, surely you don't need that many interviews. But she offered me a, a very different job at the other end because she felt I could add value, which I'm, I'm, um, I hope she was, uh, she feels she was proven right, but I was hugely grateful for because Global Strategies Group was a um, private security company that was pivoting. It was my first ever pivot to our non-weapons technology service and, uh, and consulting provider. Mm -hmm. So I had this uh, role in corporate affairs and comms that meant I sat with the greatest um, minds in the company and their advisors um, 
as they were building the strategy, the everything from the justification to the M&A case and the announcements to the press, um, the announcements to the company of, of why these investments into what feels like a very different type of business makes sense and, and how do we bring everyone with us. At the time, I was in way, way, way over my um, understanding of anything, but actually these things stay with you. And it was, um, it was a big lesson for me because it was the first but not the last time I took a job, stepping in, putting my hand up and saying, I know nothing about this, um, which was a strength because, of course, I didn't have to pretend I did. Um, and then the learning is facilitated. It was, um, it was a tough um, transition from academia to essentially a, a military-style corporate, mm. uh, but um, I, I learned amazing things. Great. And then after that, you went and joined BNY Mellon. Uh, I actually did a contract with BNY Mellon uh, for uh, a few months as a project manager. But BNY Mellon's a very friendly company. So they they don't treat you differently. And when I rejoined, um, it felt like I had never been away. Okay. Everything went well though, right? Because you were there for nearly 10 years, which is a a great stint in terms of doing it. And I guess the first real sort of taste of banking in terms of where you were. Yes. So I spent about a year with BNY, then left and joined a bunch of buddies from Cambridge who built a startup, Um, spent some time with them, um, did quite a bit of tech learning, and then returned to BNY Mellon and, as you say, spent the the biggest chunk of my career there. Mm. And the, I guess the, the biggest chunk of that chunk was looking at their innovation capability. That's right. That's a pretty impressive and a fun time to be doing that type of stuff, right? You know, that yes. was at the, the kind of rise of uh, the need to be much more innovative in banking. So how was that? It was brilliant <laughs> and frustrating. And there were days when you felt that you had just changed the world and days when it felt like you were not moving an inch, which I think is the experience um, everyone is having. <clears throat> it was um, it was brilliant for a couple of reasons. One is that at BNY Mellon, innovation is championed right at the top of the house. Um, at the time, it was the president of the company who had been encouraging those activities and creating space for them as she was rising through. Um, and as the president, she had the sort of reach and clout to make this um, serious and to put time and headspace as well as some resources uh, behind it. Um, the second reason why it was brilliant, it's very practical also, it coincided with the time when BMY Mellon was rebuilding its platforms. Mm-hmm. So actually you could talk with immense credibility about digital transformation and, and the sorts of capabilities that would um, propel the business into the future and not just be a, a sort of voice in the wilderness. The third reason that made it very good was very personal. I had earned my stripes. So I had spent enough time in operations, which is that unloved space that once you survive it gives you the most credibility, as I've, as I've um, learned. So I had freedom to do things and try things that realistically you don't get unless the company knows you and they know that you know them. So those three, com- three things combined meant that we tried an awful lot of things. Mm-hmm. Most of them succeeded more than I had expected, um, which also taught me to expect people to do amazing things if you if you support them. But the flip side, and, and you do this for a living, as do a lot of our listeners, the flip side is that once you've figured out the language of working out ideas and, and their feasibility, which is not nothing, it is a journey, it takes some learning, it is difficult, and you learn the new technologies and you learn all the rest of it, business model innovation is the hardest thing. And uh, BNY Mellon is very conscious of the fact that it represents an area of banking that has to remain as secure as possible, not by choice only, but by necessity. But at the same time, there are very many permutations of the future that don't look very profitable. So once the, I don't want to call it low hanging fruit because it wasn't, and it does a disservice to the people who worked hard at it. But once you've worked on the cultural elements and the operational and the technical, and you clear out space to power up the imagination, it is, it is clear that the future may evolve in many different ways. Um, so it was, a, it was a long-term conversation that was starting. I felt at the time that I was at a juncture where what I was doing had come to a very success, successful 
end, not finish, but a sort of end of a cycle. And the next cycle could potentially take up the rest of my career. And how do you leave a place that loves you and you love them with great difficulty? But it felt that if I didn't leave at that juncture, I would spend the rest of my career there. Um, And you see people do that. And that's that's fine. And it's, uh, you know, there are people who still work at companies that I've worked at in the past who are doing very similar roles and that's that's fine you know there's, there's still all fine. different types exactly. of people isn't there in terms of the approach but and the organization needs um these people i was just conscious that you know one of one of the things you learn with age is your own strengths and weaknesses and i know that curiosity would be my undoing if i stayed uh, whereas leaving with the best possible memories and f- faith in what they're trying to do was bittersweet but actually the the right decision at the time ask me again in a few years <laughs> So, so I guess how much of the change then, because you did a huge amount of stuff while you were there and, and there was lots of changes with the platform and everything that kind of came through. How much do you think that was down to the culture of the organization? That Was it perfect storm timing or was it a kind of a culture of uh, really being able to drive that innovation? Um, it was all down to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a, a combination of factors that were there anyway. Um, I can take some credit for bringing some of them together. So, for instance, um, BNY Mellon has a visionary CIO that is driving the, the technical transformation. Uh, it requires that kind of vision and that kind of leadership to say we're going to replatform everything and and move to a very different logic for our for our infrastructure. Um, bringing that to clients was the thing I. Um, spearheaded in Europe with with the leadership team and the sales team in Europe. You know, n- nothing is ever done by one person alone. But it was that bridge to the clients that meant that the business people started first having to understand what the future holds and then wanting to understand because we built that triangle with the business folks, the technology folks and the clients. Um, the clients in Europe were ripe for it. I was the right person to talk tech and business. Um, the leadership in Europe were happy to put me in that position, which is, as I said, partly to do with the fact that they knew and trusted me, because you don't put someone you've never seen before in front of one of your biggest clients, um, CEOs, you don't risk that. Um, so it was it was a combination of, of factors and a willingness to try a few things. Then the flip side was that because I grew out of operations, but had also done a stint in IT, mm-hmm. I could set up regional and local uh, programs that felt real to the people involved, which created a certain scent st- um, of stickiness in a region that has a whole load of people. It's 9,000 people in EMEA for, for BNY Mellon, but they are not, apart from London, there is no great concentration of them. So you have pockets of 200 here and 100 there and 400 there. It's very hard to feel part of the whole um, in a meaningful way that stays with you once the the big bosses and the glissy presentations have gotten back on a flight. So it was a combination of, you know, right time, right place, and um, a very, very receptive leadership in both the um, EMEA region and and, uh, New York. So what do you think, obviously, uh, you know, innovation in banking is is kind of something that in the last four or five years has really taken off as the sexy piece of the bank to be sort of working in, and they have the uh, interesting sort of biggest budgets in the nicest areas and the nicest offices and all these things. So, we did. <laughs> uh, but, but I guess the thing that I kind of see in what you've said there is that like the customer was at least one of the pillars out of the three that was there to experience it. So it feels like everything you were doing was to change how you were engaging with the customer. Is that right? Absolutely. So I, um, I would say that innovation um, activities uh, as we see them in, in the market at the moment would fall roughly in in three buckets one is i call it jazz hands but i i I don't mean to be as dismissive as that sounds um it it has a purpose it creates energy Mm -hmm. um, and that cannot be dismissed but it is jazz hands innovation it is on the surface it is meant to be seen uh, equally by employees clients and competitors investors um it doesn't necessarily fail to permeate, but it is not intended to have a deep and lasting impact. That jazz hands innovation can and has changed the conversation and it has created pressure on organizations to, to go deeper. It has never been my brief or strength. Um, then the second bucket is the 
the day-to-day thinking differently, behaving differently, and becoming the difference you want to see. Mm-hmm. And that's exceptionally unglamorous work. It's also what I tend to be best at. Um, but fundamentally, what differentiates uh, an innovative company from a, a, a non-innovative company is the ability to articulate the what and the why. Mm-hmm. Not every idea will fly, not every idea will be a good one, but companies that have a way of saying, what about this, are companies that will eventually try different things. And, and we all know that for reasons that are both endemic and unplanned, banks have gotten bad at it. Some of it is tools. You know, if you can't articulate what the return on investment is on, on an effort, you will never get anywhere. Um, and part of it is actually creating a, a more holistic operational environment where you can genuinely understand the impacts of what you're doing. It's unglamorous plumbing, but you need that in order to, to, to become an organization that is capable of it. And then the final piece is become a business for the future. So if the first one is be seen to be relevant, the second is get, get your body marathon ready, um, and the final is which way are you running? You can't skip any of them, actually. Um, but at BNY Mellon, because of the nature of the work we were doing, the, the jazz hands piece... Um, was the least relevant because if we were working on the or- on the sort of body politic of the organization and transforming the way we did business, then the the audience, the customers, would feel it. Yeah. Um, that only applies to a company that doesn't have a retail presence like PNY Mellon does. Sure. Um, uh, so I guess the, the most recent role that you were doing, uh, and obviously sad to leave BNY Mellon in terms of all the good times you had there, but you moved to Sapient earlier on this this year, January. I did, I did. I've had a year with Sapient, uh, which has been incredible for many reasons. One is that the one of the buddies I set up the, um, the startup with, his first ever job was at Sapient. And he had a, a love affair with them that, that is almost not normal. If you're watching this, you should look into it. Um, and he loved them so much. So when I was approached by Sapien, they said, well, you may not have heard of us. <laughs> oh my God, have I though? Um, it was an incredible time. It was, um, there is a, even though I was in the global markets um, side of things, there is an agency feel to it. There is a cool factor that as a banker didn't stop uh, amazing me and delighting me for the whole year I was there. A lot of creativity, a lot of energy. Um, Sapien's part of a, of a great transition now, the, the publicist acquisition of uh, both the Sapien family, but also uh, a few other brands that are bringing digital capabilities to the table were very exciting. And it is what lured me over. I thought, look at this lineup. We've got Razorfish and you've got Digital LBI and you've got Sapien, yeah. uh, Sapien Nitro. If this... Um, collection of things don't work the magic, then nothing will. You know, it's a huge group. Like you say, yeah. Razorfish and LBI and Sapien together, that's a pretty significant kind of uh, transformation base, isn't Absolutely. It? So. And it's, it's an amazing lineup of, of talent and experience. Um, and it's also a, a unique um, group in terms of its size. Because you can see in terms of the checklist of capabilities, you, you see teams um, trying to replicate that... that um, talent spread, but what the set of acquisitions is doing for this, uh, the P.S group, is depth of talent um, across those capabilities. But of course, it's, it's a transitional period, right? So, so things are coming together much more smoothly than you'd expect, um, actually, and people are collaborating. Every single project I worked on in my year at Sapien was collaborative cross-agency, mm-hmm. which was, I had never seen that before in any of the um, organizations I've worked in. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, and how was the how was the transition between banking and consultancy? Because uh, it's a, a kind of a different uh, different side of the office, isn't it? In terms of the uh, the sort of skill sets and approach to kind of doing consultancy. It was um, not for me. I think um, it's on me actually, because the bankers liked having a banker on the other side of the table. Um, you understand the unspoken elements of the problem and, and the, the complexities that may be artificial, but they're there. And that's a key thing, isn't it? I, I, I genuinely, as somebody who's been in a bank, 
I think showing people that you understand just how hard it is. Yeah. You know, there are so many people who are out there who are just sort of throwing stones at aren't you stupid that you haven't, you know, why aren't you being innovative and why aren't you changing the the uh, the way your business models and everything that sort of comes with it. But it, it really is hard. You know, we're big organizations. Exactly. Right? And, and understanding that complexity, but also bringing the um, empathy of, I know what your day looks like. I know that you have half an hour with a CEO today and you're not going to see them for three weeks. And the traction you will get will be now the riding on the quality of whatever you say in that half an hour, provided it doesn't get rescheduled or cancelled. So, so that understanding actually gave a lot of comfort to the bankers. And, and on the Sapien side, the combination of skills, then the, the fintech element and the banker element was, um, was useful to have around the table. Um, but there is an element of, of consulting craft that is just not in my repertoire, um, which I've had to, to pick up while I was there. But fundamentally, I think my own personality is, uh, I like to have skin in the game. I have enjoyed the, the freedom of being on the agency side, but my heart is actually in being in the thick of it and, and, and things being fixed, being my problem and my responsibility. Yeah. Um, I can understand that. Sometimes it's nice to own the problem, isn't it, exactly. in terms of actually where you're going. Well, Remind me, I said that when <laughs> when I own the problem again, and and it feels um, it feels difficult and stressful. But um, but yeah, if you have to, if you really believe in the change, then then having skin in the game is the only way to do. Yeah. And you've now left Sapient. You're enjoying a festive period in uh, in, in London right now. I and, am. Uh, and you're going back into banking, so that's great. So we'll uh, we'll pick up with you maybe in the new year and, right. and see where you are. That's right. Watch this space. I, I guess moving on to, to sort of something I've seen you talk about uh, a number of times recently is, is sort of open banking and APIs. Um, and really, you know, you kind of nailed it in some of the talks that I've uh, I've listened into in terms of how the change needs to come about within those organisations. What is it you think is so exciting about this space for our uh, for our listeners? It's a bit like magic. If you're not a techie, um, we are able to do things that feel to the non-technical people like a Harry Potter moment. You can just make things happen. Um, for the technologists who are in this side of the divide, the, the sort of new, new, new type of geek, um, it means that what is possible is now commercially viable. Whereas um, for a very long time, quite a lot of technological capability was not permitted for use in banks. And sure, you remember the time when open source software was not acceptable. Um, so that, that those those changes make it exciting for for all sides um, of the equation. We can now and do with quite a lot of um, the activity in banking reimagine the process. Uh, we built an entire industry around what was possible in order to achieve what was desirable. Now we can redesign what we do because new things are possible. That's amazing. Mm. I mean, the fact that so much of it and in so many different guises is happening in our lifetime is absolutely inspirational, but it's also terrifying because we have to do a lot of learning. We have to do a lot of imagining, which is exhausting and, and it, it falls into rustiness if you don't use it very much. And we also have to figure out, um, how we're going to do all of that and, and make money. Yeah. And the realization that we will make money differently in different places and in different ways and in different numbers is not as simple as all that. Mm. And there's lots of, I guess the you know, technology has been a limiting factor for so long that actually it's almost become an excuse in most organizations that that won't be possible, similar to regulation, right? And now actually we've got you know things like PSD2 and the movement around APIs really being the fuel for innovation, really. It's kind of now uh, the reason it wouldn't happen before, but actually now this is the reason why you know banks stand a chance at kind of out-innovating some of the fintechs, isn't it? So I absolutely agree with that. I think we've seen a couple of, of massive changes. One is... Um, Traditionally, you either have no technology, so it was pen and paper, and that's why we have these sort of circuitous routes. And then it was a case of having clunky and difficult technology with super users and BRDs. And, and that, that painful process of explaining what you want and having it built in a very laborious and expensive way and then having to learn and relearn. And now we have technology that is actually easy to build and very easy to use. So that, that transition is... Um, 
the technology moved faster than a lot of us did. So we have to wrap our heads around what is now possible. But what is becoming very powerful um, and evident to me at least, and I think I think to others as well, is that banking was a service industry from its inception and it was serving needs. And then secondary products and layers of industry grew up on top of it. But fundamentally, needs of individuals, corporations and commercial relationships were being served. And those will continue to be served. But regulation was never regulating those. They were regulating the entities providing those services. And what we're seeing across the board with regulation, corporate commercial banking, uh, retail banking, but also sort of deep end is is a shift to regulating what is being done rather than who is doing it, which sounds minor, but it isn't. Because fundamentally now, as you said, what you have by way of technology is your problem. What is possible by way of technology is on the table and the regulator says, well, you're meant to be doing X. I know there are better ways of doing it. So I will give you the long runway because I appreciate the complexity, but actually the world has changed. Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Because uh, I get, uh, you know, I think you absolutely nail on the head there. You know, we've moved from financial services to financial products, haven't we? And actually um, the regulator was regulating how those products were sold, not in the, the, the manner in which actually the intent was there around doing it. Exactly. And they've shifted that goalpost quite dramatically in recent times. And that's why you know, mis-selling and all these things is, is actually where the focus is now rather than, you know, yeah. is this displayed in the right format and text and how it yeah. should be yeah, put yeah, together. Yeah, exactly. um, and it's hard, you know, it's hard for banks because actually this is a kind of a cultural change, isn't it, as much as anything else, you know. But how, how do you think, I guess, that APIs play into that? Because really, do banks get the, that significance of the change that they need to make to, to implement APIs properly? I don't want to... to give a blanket dismissal and say I say they all don't. I think that the varying degrees of we, understanding generalizations of nobody gets yeah, it. Exactly, um, yeah. The world they're, is over. They're very the the differences of, of understanding uh, across organizations and within them. But I think there there are three things that need to be understood and I'm gonna make it sound simple and it isn't one is what is it and how do I build it? And most banks have gotten around to figuring that out. Either they're retraining their own people or they're hiring fresh-faced university graduates who know how to cut an API. Great. Um, the complexity that goes with that is you're not starting from scratch. You have legacy systems. An API wrapper has its challenges, both in terms of the, the information you are about to expose. So it is, it is not an insignificant process in terms of effort, design, and technology. But I would say that out of the three buckets, it's the one that's making the most progress. Um, the second element is, what is this thing when it is finished? And how do you price it in a way that allows for your organization to remain relevant, useful, and viable? Um, and that's not a question that is being tackled adequately because it's both because it's hard and because a lot of unknowns are in play. And when you're being assessed quarter on quarter, um, it, its significance may not uh, be top of mind. Or actually, it's the fact that the answer of how do you price this and what animal do you become is still philosophically open-ended, but it's, it's pressing now. The final piece is, if you are going to move to a business that um, deals in data in a very raw manner, and your ecosystem stickiness is what creates marketplace relevance for you, your most useful and most valuable employees are now your techies. And a very different breed of techie they are. Um, no one has quite gotten to this problem yet, but how do you manage those? How do you hire them? How do you create the language in what is historically a hierarchical organization that allows whatever creativity and fluidity and on-the-fly adjustment these um, techies are used to bringing with them to be fully vetted and accepted. It's, the organization needs to change. But fundamentally, first build it with a clear understanding of what you're building it for. Then actually figure out what the business model is. Because unless you have a business model that has any viability in it, you don't need to learn how to manage the people. It's cruelly not a problem you're going to have. <laughs> That's very true. So do you think the, the banks then can, I guess, 
you know, this is the sort of old dogs learning new tricks to a certain degree in terms of the, the ways in which you can leverage APIs, the services that you can deliver to communities of people to really sort of build amazing things. Do you think the, the sort of this fintech banking sort of battlegrounds that's kind of happening at the moment, do you think there's a happy ending in this for, for banks? Oh, you change. I thought you were going to leave it open-ended. It's like, sure, there's a happy ending. Um, it's, it's a very a very good question. So let's let's be honest. We, we like to bash a banker, but since I'm about to, to go back to my roots and become a banker again, I should defend us and say, banks have been pretty innovative over the years. Um, they started with pen and paper, and we have algo trading. They, they embrace technology in a way to deliver services, in a way that have at times slimmed down their organization and improved... Um, delivery and value for clients and margins for them. The challenge we have presented banks with um, in this juncture is that quite a lot of the things being put on the table attack profitability. So we are saying, hello, here's something that will make you less relevant and make you more money. Can you pay for it? And then we've sort of sat around in judgment going, they're not playing. it's not a good deal. It's not a good deal. And what we are seeing in the fintech space is that the fintechs that are providing customers a good solution are getting traction. The fintechs that are providing banks a good solution are getting traction. The fintechs that are providing an aspirational vision of a potential future that is requiring a lot of investment but not actually giving anyone real benefit are not getting any traction. I wonder why. So, so it's not the innovative element, um, the innovative gene in banks that, that is missing. What, what is missing from a lot of the things on the table is the value proposition. And this is where the change in regulation has actually completely changed um, the game. Because to me, and this is a very personal opinion, the body of regulation that we have received over the last five years very specifically casts the way banks make money in sharp relief. It doesn't take it to task. It doesn't address it directly. But fundamentally, it unpicks the way banks make money. And it forces, by design or default, a reimagination of profitability structures. The people sitting behind the desks that are impacted by those um, decisions are human beings. And they are faced with their entire knowledge base becoming redundant, their entire department potentially having to be redesigned. And at the same time, we're expecting them to be creative and imaginative in this new future. Um, If we are going to be frank about it, banking has always been about money, managing money and making money. It's the making of money that is the unspoken question in a lot of these things. Now, it might be that less money will be made, or money will be made differently. Um, but until those questions are clarified, then Turkey is Christmas. Yeah. Um, so, so do you think that's kind of the point, that actually uh, the service, if that came back in, that people wouldn't have so much problem as, as kind of banks making money? Because, you know, I don't think anybody begrudges a, uh, you know, an organisation actually making money, but maybe it's about how that money is made. We won't know until we know, right? But I think there's a there's um, um, a truth in what you just said. There is anger. Post-2008, there is anger at all levels of society towards banking, retail in particular, and the assumption that money is being made for no service at all. The advent of, of APIs and associated technologies perversely means that y- you do even less. Uh, once you've built the infrastructure, because quite a lot of the reporting and the human intervention will not be needed. Uh, so the question of how do you justify the same price point if you do less is hovering there. The supposition, right or wrong, that banks were making profits that were too high for society to sustain is there irrespective of whether there's any truth to it or not, and we can come back to that. And then there is the element of people have gotten used to free banking, because they don't see where the charges are. So as banking changes, there need to be some conversations on both sides. On the banker side, nobody said that the way they make a living was guaranteed forever. Um, So change in in new areas of profitability and certain areas of profitability not existing anymore has to be part of the equation. But on, on the other side, it's a business. And a business that isn't profitable goes out of business. And it's a business we need but it is not a public service business. So um, it should go without saying that both fintech and banking can and should remain profitable. 
but the way that profitability works doesn't necessarily need to remain unchanging. I agree. And maybe sort of changing pace slightly and moving away from uh, kind of what's happening in the space and more into sort of who's doing it. Um, for anybody who's watching this or listening to this and it hasn't sort of occurred to you, Lida is a lady. Uh, <laughs> and actually sort of moving into more of a conversation about women in fintech. You know, we had the Innovate Finance uh, Women in Fintech Power List announced this a few weeks ago now, which... For anybody who's li- listening at that organization, the fact leader wasn't on that list is an absolute travesty. So uh, sort yourselves out, guys. Um, but in terms of like statistically, we're seeing no real change in what seems to be what everybody agrees, just a travesty that why isn't there more women in, in, in banking and fintech? So from uh, looking at the stats, we're seeing over half or just under half, sorry, of university graduates are, are women. Um, we've got uh, 36% at lower levels of, of management being women. Um, but that actually, when it starts to get into top executives and, and boards, we're only seeing 18% of top executives. We're seeing 14% of boards and only 6% of CEOs. What is going on here? Why is this uh, such a, why, you know, 2016, why, why are we still talking about this? I know. Uh, and actually, the... The happy version of why I'm not on the list is that there are now so many of us uh, that some stay off the list. Um, But the flip side is there shouldn't be a list. There's no list of men in fintech. Um, And and I'm not even sure what these lists are meant to prove. Look, they exist or um, have faith it can be done. Um, Either way, I think the realities of, of being a woman, there are a couple of things that are unspoken and and, um, and I know that they're not pleasant conversations to have but but fundamentally I think we're dealing with two pretty heavy legacies here one is that and I know you you're a dad so I'm putting this on you now um, if you tell your son you'll teach them how to fix their bike but fix your daughter's bike for her you create expectations among both your your boys and girls which is why we see not single causal explanation, right? But it is one of the reasons why we see fewer women going into science, technology, mathematics, um, engineering than men. It is not something that women are still to this day encouraged to play with. Um, so, so you start off uh, on the back foot, but you get people like me who cross over later in life, even though I started in the humanities. So it's not incapacitating, and there are still women going through through the sciences, but I, but I do think it starts at an early age uh, of, of creating that ungendering of the environment. Um, things get a little harder when you get into the workplace. And what I have found, be very interesting and in, in, interested in the feedback to see if, if other people have had a very different experience, but in what I have found, being a woman doesn't necessarily close any doors, but it makes being in the room harder. And it makes being in the room harder in ways that become a daily annoyance and it is on you as a woman to do something about things that A, shouldn't be happening and B, should not be your problem. And it's a war of attrition that I know a lot of women choose to stop fighting. From the simple fact that you get comments on your appearance uh, to the fact that for work presented alongside a man, the man will get the praise, the woman will get the criticism. Uh, the man will get the questions, the woman will get asked to take minutes. Is that universal? No. Has it happened to me at least once every day of my working life? Yes. Has it happened to everyone else also? Yes. Has it held me back? No. Has it made me a little more tired? Yes. And the difficulty is that you have to make a choice that is unfair. Do I tell my boss that it is inappropriate that they comment on my appearance? Do I tell the guy who just asked my colleague a question uh, that it was actually my work since I presented it? Do I tell the man who ignored me but accepted the point that I just made when it was made by a man that that's not on? And my view is that I shouldn't and, and other women shouldn't but I can fix it for the ones who come after me and you can fix it for me. Because if I say, why did you, did you not ask me a question? It's petulant. If you, as an innocent bystander, male in your case, but it doesn't have to be, you can do it as an other person, 
point out that there is something endemic in what just happened, it can be very light touch. It can be hugely reassuring for the person who experienced it that other people notice it. And it becomes more about process and less about the person. And I would say that the thing that holds women back is that daily decision of, do I let this one slide? And this one? And this one? Because even as I talk about these incidents, they don't sound important. They sound trivial. Come on, man up, right? But actually, if they come... There's something in that, right? <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. But if they, if they come on a daily basis, um, they are exhausting. And I, and I do think that it's, um, it has no easy fix. Diversity and inclusion activities are great, but they don't fix that. Mm. Only daily behavioral change will fix that. Um, and it's unglamorous and the unglamorous things only get fixed last, but it's that daily war of attrition um, that makes women think, do I pick up on it? And then it, it holds you back in, in ways that um, could be avoided. Yeah. Do, do you think, um, you know, the only, the only thing I can really relate this, relate this to is that I've generally been one of the younger people in the room when, when I've either been at a bank or uh, an organization and actually there's a way that I've had to pretend to behave for, yeah, yeah. you know, a good 10 years of my life in terms of doing things. Do you think there's a pressure on women to work and behave and act in a certain way within the sort of banking sphere that actually it's a sort of a man's portrayal of business really? And so we sort of see this potentially in startups as well. You know, startups are all about, you know, changing the world and destroying competitors and actually that doesn't really speak to the ways in which women want to, or you know, generalizing here, uh, and want to kind of engage in doing things. You know, we, do, what do you think, Ty? A couple of questions in there. Let me let me unpack it because I think you've raised a lot of very interesting things there. Whether there is an expectation from men that women behave a certain way, or women assume there is an expectation, and therefore um, there there are layers to these to these assumptions. I suspect there are a lot of men who feel. Um, constrained by corporate culture, but they still, um, they still work around it. Um, there are, there is an awareness, um, I think among any, any woman that, um, she needs to take uh, more care of her appearance, that she needs to not, um, create, um, friendliness can be mistaken for flirtation and those, those daily, um, reflections that are not necessarily, um, real, but they are experienced as real, so they're there. I, th I think there's definitely something there. Um, there's also an element of um, unconscious bias. We've talked about it a lot and we still miss it. I, um, one of the fun things of being a doctor is that everyone assumes I am a man before I turn up. I, they don't mistake me for a man once I turn up, thankfully. But, um, but I have had so many instances where I arrived for an event, a conference, a meeting, with people who didn't already know me, my initials being AL, people assume my name is Al. Um, and people say, well, have a cup of tea, love. We're waiting for Dr. Glyptis. He's not here yet. Similarly, I have had um, women working for me over the years who would call and and say, you know, my, my boss will sign off on that. And people would automatically say, what's his name? And uh, does it matter? No. But it sort of does, uh, because there is a, the assumption that if you see a group of people, the woman amongst them will be the assistant is still with us. Yeah. So, so what do we do, right? You know, there's a, you know, a whole swathe of, I guess, organizations pointing out the problem. But there's, you know, I guess it goes back to the sort of Einstein thing. It's kind of uh, repetitive of the same thing and expecting a different outcome is, is kind of a definition of madness, right? You know, we've had 20 odd years of, uh, of people sort of pointing it out and, uh, and kind of doing what they thought would make a change. But when you look at the statistics, we've only seen 0.3% shift in actually those senior positions to, to a woman. So... Yeah, how do we fix this? Opportunity has a nasty habit of looking like hard work. Um, it's going to take a lot of hard work in, in places that are not visible. Example, if you raise your daughter to feel that she can't do certain things, by the time she's four or five, she can't do them. 
if you have a society that expects women to behave a certain way, even if they don't, they're already fighting against a burden that shouldn't be there. Um, a limiting narrative that you have to deal with first before you get on with the thing you're doing. It doesn't stop you, but it slows you down. Um, if your maternity policy is um, two weeks to the man and doesn't actually force, like the FCA does, split maternity, uh, split parental leave, mm. then it will forever be a consideration. I was asked at a job interview uh, whether I was planning on having any children. Wow. It's illegal, but it was actually, they were trying to be nice. They said, this role will entail a lot of travel. If you have children who are about to have them, it will be a problem. And I said, would you have asked a man that? Similarly, different job interview. I suspect the person who asked me that will uh, be watching this video. How are you managing women? Otherwise, an exceptionally open-minded person. I said, would you have asked that of a man? How are you managing men? So we, we carry... Uh, a lot of our history with us. And we, we need to call each other up on it. But while we genderize the world, we don't kill anything, but we slow things down. It feels like there needs to be, you know, this scale of change doesn't happen with sort of drips, right? You know, we're not going to have the, the sort of slow drip of a need to change or a kind of a want to change without making a radical step in terms of where we, where we go. Uh, do you think kind of big organizations are really making enough kind of movements to, you know, we see, you know, events or we'll see sort of PR sort of coming out around uh, the, the desire or support of a campaign of some description. But like I say, I, I think this has to be not about talking, it has to be about doing. Yeah. And I think yeah. until we actually see significant doing in this space, then I think all, all organizations are sort of in the same boat, unfortunately. I think... Um you're right. We need to acknowledge the progress that has been made. I am, um, when I was still at BNY Mellon, which is actually exceptionally good at diversity and inclusion, uh, to give them their due, active diversity and inclusion. I had an ultimate reporting line into a female executive. Um, I had a friend who worked in a solid female line, and there was no assumption that it was a, a, a tokenism um, effort. Great. So we've made it this far. And, and some organizations are still getting there. For me, the next two steps that are, are chunky and they're going to cost, but they will actually bring the real benefit of diversity in are one, um, take the differentiators away. Make Parental leave is a good example because I just recently found out that the FCA do that. If it's not up to the couple to choose how they split it, but parental leave is a requirement because it makes you a better human being, then all of a sudden you degenderize quite a lot. If, if picking up your children from school doesn't become the responsibility of one parent, um, so I think that, that, um, lifts quite a lot out. The, the other element is diversity can't just be visual. So one of the biggest challenges I have ever had in my career was to hire people from different backgrounds. I want to fire, hire a nuclear physicist. Why? Because they're going to ask wacky questions that I can't think of. But I need to allow for the time that it will take this person to become intelligible. Now, it could be a white guy. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the organization creates a space for different voices which uh, will liberate everyone and actually bring the goods in. Uh, but it will also allow for that conversation where you will remember not to talk in acronyms because there are people in here who are very useful but didn't grow up in the same place as you. But you will also change the language enough to say to folks, hey, don't ask David. Lita just told you that the answer is X. If you have a problem with that, it's on her. I think it's way more likely they're going to ask you the question than the <laughs> but, uh, but that's uh, not nothing to do with gender. It's because I'm scary. <laughs> that's, that's what has um, sort of equalized the, uh, the gender imbalance. I, I, I met this person in a social setting last night and towards the end he said, you're terrifying. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. So I guess going from I, I guess one you know hot topic in the in the uh, in the space of, of kind of banking to another one I know you're very passionate about 
Um, we've sort of gone through quite a tumultuous time recently yeah. with uh, everything with Brexit and obviously now with uh, Trump's election. And I think today we had the uh, Italian, Italian Prime Minister resigning yeah. and various different things globally. Um, what the hell is going on? Like the world seems to be uh, sort of uh, breaking. I know. Um, I just said earlier, talking about banking and gender equality, that opportunity looks like hard work and and so does citizenship. And I think what we are, um, what we're witnessing is a time of relative stability. And I know that a lot of people don't feel that their life has been filled with plenty, but actually compared historically um, to other generations and, and periods before us, we are going through a period of, of great stability and uh, particularly in Europe and, and uh, I would go as far as to say prosperity for some societies and, and we've gotten used to it to a certain extent. And big decisions are, are being put on the table in a, in a tweetable format. Um, and it's, it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, we have put big decisions on the table with inadequate information. And because of the relative stability and also because people have gotten cynical, they've voted this guy in and that guy in and not much change. So a protest vote, has not had a, a price um, over the last few years. We've seen people vote one way or another on a gripe or on a inadequate information, and we have not seen the impetus to get smarter. So things that were exceptionally complicated were oversimplified. The, the referendum in Italy yesterday assumed that you had gone on and read the reform. I would be very surprised if anyone had. Greece had a similar referendum um, a year ago now, saying the law of proposes things that you haven't read. Do you agree? And, and even whether agreeing required a yes or a no was unclear, let alone the implications of the law. Brexit was a similar situation. Do you want this thing that you don't necessarily know enough about or this other thing that we haven't defined? Um, and responsibility lies across the board because the leaders of, of all camps did not allow for complexity. Let us have a really difficult conversation because if I try to explain to you, I can't by the way, but if I try to explain to you how the super collider works but not use any physics, chances are you won't be able to repair it. And that's what we're looking at. So I'm, I'm sad. I'm, I'm sad because I think we're losing something fundamental, both as, as citizens and, and in terms of our humanity. And, and because we're simplifying complex things, um, people feel misunderstood because they're talking across purposes, mm -hmm. which means that we're constantly angry at each other over things that we haven't actually discussed. We might find that we're not at odds if we were able to discuss them. Mm -hmm. How much do you think people are, I guess, accountable to this, though? So to your, to your point, there's been so much, uh, you know, definitely in terms of the, the, the Brexit campaign and everything that's happened with uh, Trump's election recently. How accountable do you think the people who are voting really are, given the how manipulated they've been in terms of the facts and the figures and the, you know, the positioning of these things? I almost, I find, I find it difficult to... Um, yeah. to, to push on somebody because actually they've been lied to, you know? Yes, I do. And, and I do think that there is almost a fictional line between responsibility and accountability. Um, but we, wherever you choose to put it, we have two undeniable facts. One is we have chosen indirect democracy as the way of organizing our societies in the absence of a better system. And in that, you turn up to vote and then you are accountable for, or rather you are responsible for it, but you're not accountable because nothing happens, right? The flip side is that people were lied to, but not everyone believed it. What differentiates the people who didn't believe the lies? Was it curiosity? Was it actually um, leveraging the resources available to all? If you don't want to work for something, do you still deserve it? And I am not advocating for restrictions on citizenship. I am advocating for responsible citizenship. You should not 
consider yourself morally absolved from reading a piece of legislation before going to vote for it. I don't know how you test for that, whether you go page 78, what's on it? Um, but fundamentally, we're, we've got a systemic crisis on our hands. If we are going to put really complex things to the vote, uh, but not expect that our citizens will be willing and able to understand what it is they're voting on, What's next? Having your next door neighbor operating on you because you like them? It is worrying, isn't it? It's, it's hugely worrying. And I think the, uh, you know, the sort of rhetoric about the democracy changes and, you know, actually a lot of the, what's been voting for is or so, sort of anti-globalization, isn't it, in terms of actually what we're Time seeing. travel. But there's, yeah, is there, is, can we put the genie back in the bottle? Here? No, I think people are voting for time travel. And I, I understand the sentiment. I, mean, I We've talked about this offline. My, my own father was, was impacted by globalization. His business uh, was destroyed. So I totally understand the sentiment of, of those who are at the sort of sticky end of the lollipop thinking this, this feels wrong and I want to fight it. But fundamentally, the rhetoric um, used around both the Trump campaign and the, um, the Brexit campaign entailed time travel. And, and quite a lot of rose-tinted spectacle use because it was not only going back to a pre-globalization, pre-global warming, pre-interdependency era, but it's also forgetting quite a lot of the things that we have now because of that progress. And the time when TVs exploded because they were um, you know, constructed in a very small market, obviously it didn't happen here, but it did happen across Europe. There are ways of remembering that time that are not as rosy. Um, but where is the conversation that that says, citizen, you are educated, and I know that because I designed uh, an accessible and meaningful education system, and you are a responsible adult, and I respect you enough to say, I have no perfect solution for you. And these are the imperfect options, and, and pick one. Because what we would have then would be a much deeper period of consultation, no histrionics, and no anger, because the parameters on which people chose would then be articulable. Is that a word? Um, I chose this because, rather than I chose this because, ah. Yeah. But it's, do you think we're, therefore, I guess, at the beginning of what will be quite a lot of backlash, right? You know, the the um, Trump campaign has promised, you know, loads of jobs going back to places like Detroit. And we've got the uh, Brexit campaign promising all of this money that's going to be flooding into the NHS. And, you know, actually, when people realize in a few years that none of that stuff has actually happened, you know, what is the backlash going to be from the, you know, the general public here? It's a good question. And, and the answer is, it entirely depends on what else is happening. Um, the gestation period of quite a lot of the things we're looking at is so long that chances are if the trend of populist politics continues, by the time we see the impact, the disassociation will be almost automatic. You, you see a dip in um, quality of care because the type of research that allowed us to improve the type of care we get in the NHS for particular ailments was premised on pooling uh, research results across Europe, which we may or may not have access to after this, when the quality of care deteriorates in 20 years' time, will anyone be able to articulate that this is why it happened in a compelling manner? So um, we're looking at really long-term impacts here on, on research, on the economy, on uh, everything from gender politics and environmental politics to... Um, to healthcare life expectancy and the quality of our food, quite a lot of it won't be readily visible unless someone flags it. And if you're looking at a 20, 30 year gestation, what else is going on in the world will color how people interpret it for better or worse. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, you sort of coming full circle in this conversation, really, you came to this country because of uh, 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 an opportunity from an educational perspective in terms of where you were. I guess, what do you, how does this make you feel, I guess, about the UK in terms of, you know, d does it make you feel differently about the way that the UK embrace uh, a difference of people? It does. It absolutely does. I've been here 19 and a half years and I am an immigrant. And when I say that to people who voted Brexit, they say, no, no, you're not. 
but I am, and I, I am an immigrant, um, and I have the traits of all immigrants. I came for an opportunity. I came fully grown, which means cheaper to run. Um, I have been lucky enough to be healthy. So I have been a taxpayer with no drain on the economy. I happen to not have had children also. So the services I have consumed have been minimal. The services I have contributed to have been high, not because I'm a better person, but because I'm an immigrant. Immigrants tend to be net contributors to the economy. Um, I happen to be an immigrant that is so well integrated, that doesn't feel like an immigrant, even to those who voted out but I am one. And the reason I came and stayed was that it was okay. It was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't feel okay anymore. What I, what I hope will happen is that the language of difference will shift. Uh, people are always protective of their own. People are always suspicious of difference. But we have spent way too long, and I don't mean years and years, I mean the last, the last year in particular, this debate has, has actively sought out what, what divides us. So much of it feels artificial. And, and this country, in all my time here, has been so good at getting on with things and not being distracted by what is not important. Even people who had radically different political views just got on in a way that was practical. And I loved that. And I never thought that in my lifetime I would see a political assassination in this country. Um, I hope, currently against hope, but I will hold on to it, that the place that made me feel welcome will find itself again, because all this hate is, is good for nothing. I agree. It's a uh, it's sad, sad times, and I think the the lack of direction on it is uh, what sort of gives us uh, even more fear. If uh, if we knew where we were going, at least we could rationalise where it was. Yeah, absolutely, and and find solace in activity and progress. Because now the um, the practical implications of the inaction are definitely felt in business, but at the begin beginning to be felt by the common man who thought that whatever impact this vote has on the city, it's no skin off my nose. But actually, if you have a mortgage and credit card, it does. It does, definitely. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Maybe one one last thing to answer. So I guess the the one thing I'm always really sort of interested in is is kind of what people's golden rule is. So of your sort of day-to-day working in terms of your business life, in terms of how you go, what's the sort of golden rule you never break? This is uh, coming from a conversation I had with my grandfather when I was very, very young. He had to make some very hard decisions, and I said to him, how did you do it? And he gave me an answer that I did not understand then, but I do now, and I live by it. If you choose who you are, what you do will follow, and it might be hard to do, but you will never see space for compromise. If you choose what you do, the context and parameters make for exceptions but those exceptions add up to an inconsistent life that you might not be able to be proud of choose who you are what you do follows brilliant advice right there leader thank you very much for joining us thank you for having me thank you wise words from leader indeed thanks so much for joining us leader and if you like this episode we'd love it if you left us a review on itunes thanks for everything and goodbye